0: Well, you've all heard of Bloom's Day for James Joyce. Well, I'm calling today Hawthorne Day for Sean O'Casey. And I'm starting a trail of Sean O'Casey's Dublin. And why did I pick the Black Church for the starting spot? Well, I was hoping that all the ghosts of the great writers might join me. Brinsley Sheridan, Joseph Sheridan Leppenhue, Brendan Bean, Austin Clarke, James Joyce, St. John Gogarty, and even Sean O'Cathy himself, who was born around the corner in Dorset Street.
1: Now, he was like an old man of 80. Low shoulders, terrible small, beady eyes, always sore. And nearly, he couldn't hardly see. He wouldn't understand. But tall, you know, but bent. Very, uh, an old coat on, never stylish. You wouldn't say that he was a nicely dressed now. He was really very shabby because he would no means to get anything. He used to go round now, like, doing different jobs around the us. He didn't drive or went to anything. He must have took off goods off the railway or something like that. He had to face this... Well, he was a gentleman in his own way, you know what I mean? Nice and quiet and all that. Nice man, but he wasn't pretty good, you know.
0: I'm here at 422 North Sacred Road examining Sean O'Casey's second mark three and you can take my word for it the poor old three has seen better days (laughs) I'm after coming down by the black church, down by Wellington Street where he once lived and there isn't hair or scarum or sign of the house and then I went around to Dorset Street, the birthplace now it's a bank today but in O'Casey's day looking at the houses beside it you know it was a fine old mansion in itself (laughs) And I've heard people boasting about having lived in tenements with a closed hall door. Well, after all, we must remember that Sean O'Casey, his family, owned their own hall door. So, in 1880, it wasn't a bad-looking mansion at all. He was
2: uh,
3: very thin, of much describer as miserable-looking, with uh, peculiar feet, not club feet, but something of that nature. I so wouldn't say there was a farm, but they were peculiar. And he always wore the hobnail boots.
4: Did Sean ever chase you away from him or anything like
3: that? Well, he often lifted the window and roared out at me. When he disturbed, when he was playing the chanter. The bagpipes used to walk up and down the room playing the chanter. i had studied music or not? I don't know. But <clears throat> we were making a noise outside. He'd shout at us, clear <throat> away. He might have said something else, but I forget it. it-
5: Uncle Jack danced Orish, great. And I went with him to a few of his clubs a couple of times and it was all Orish dancing was done and Orish singing. So it was lovely. And I was only about 12.
4: Did you hear him play the bagpipes?
5: Often. And often looked at him going from one room into another playing. He played them lovely. All Orish tunes. He learned us a, a little bit of Orish when we were young, you know. And his I'll make them up, and a few other little bits, you know I? I'd be cutting them here with it.
6: Sean O'Casey had been a member of the Law of Darug or the Red Hat Hand Drunchondra branch of the Gaelic League where he had played hurling with that club. He became the first secretary of the St. Laurence O'Toole's Pipers Band was formed around that time. He played hurling but not to a, not to a great extent as his poor eyesight did not allow it. He remained a member of the club until about 1920. He was also responsible for forming a dramatic class in the club who held their meetings in the Oriel Hall, Oriel Street, beside several Place. As a matter of fact, they played on the Olympia Theatre on one occasion, and it was a very successful uh, show. Around
3: 1917, I think. As I knew him, a very humble type of man, and casual worker, and a bit odd in his way that he could be able to put... The... Put these ideas of his on paper and write them into a play to be played on the Abbey stage. Uh, how I always regard him as a crank. That's my boyhood impression of him, and I don't think, I no see real reason to change it now. Did you like him? No. We're
1: well, about the one age, of course, but still I couldn't realize him. I went to be we had my own boyfriend, married my own by-friend. I never knew how Mrs, uh, Miss Carey ma- Clary married him. Really? No, 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 so he must have married, she must have married him for his talent or something.
2: Sean had passed away from two Jennies, one Bella, and this girl gave him the fullest experience of feminine good companionship he had had so far. She was a good looking lass. O'Casey's description of Mara Keating, the girl he left behind him, is in Inish Fallon fairly well. The girl is still alive, now in her late 80s, twice married since he left, still reading three or four newspapers a day and solving crossword puzzles. Mrs Dargan, as she is now, will tell you about her early days in the East Wall area, about her teaching in Baldoyle, about the love letters and poems O'Casey wrote to her. But she's most insistent that not a word of that goes down on any recording machine. So you will not hear the voice of the woman who, according to Sean, wilted under the family resentment and the priest's advice about marrying a Protestant. However, there on the outer edge of O'Casey country, she lives still, in a solid red-brick terrace house off Home Farm Road, where in Sean's day there was a hedge-bordered road, and he pulled a rare big bunch of hips and haws to bring home to his mother. The Cat and Cage pub on the opposite side of Drumcondra Road, now owned by Paddy Mulholland from Gorton in Tyrone, was then, as he describes it in pictures in the hallway, no more than a thatched country cottage. But Inish Fallon Parade, nearer the city, where he had lived as a child and where his father died in 1886, has hardly changed at all.
0: Well, it's a long way from Mount Malik to Inish Fallon Parade to number nine, Sean O'Casey's house. But be dads, there's a Mount Malik man here, Stuart Flood, and he's doing a great bit of painting and decorating and varnishing. And I asked him was he ever inspired to write a story here? And he said to me, inspired to write a story? No, but would you be inspired to help me put up a few tiles and do a bit of painting? And it's nice to see the old O'Casey house here where Sean O'Casey lived as a child, and it's beautifully painted up and is a great credit
4: to the man from Mount Malik. I'm a Southsider and I can testify that uh, the... even still, I feel that civilisation stops at O'Connell Bridge, or begins to stop, and that once you go over to the north side of Dublin, well, there's a reasonable degree of civilisation until you get up as far as Parnell Square. But every few yards you go beyond that, you're getting more, going more and more into the jungle, into the wilds, until you get up as far as Belfast, and then really you've hit the all-time low.
0: We move on up past Clontork and from Condor Graveyard and moved now into the cat and cage and of course in O'Casey's day he got at last a red ruby claret nice and warm and so sure, maybe he'll have the same himself, have you any red claret there and can you heat it up <laughs> so uh, well anyway he's it's gone to see is there any claret but the other two bios they had a, a point of plain and a point of Guinness and there was a few horrors here and uh, a bit of a shindy started over Parnell and who betrayed Parnell and who Kitty O'Shea and all that sort of stuff. But there doesn't seem to be any sort of a hassle here this afternoon. <laughs> and I suppose our next port of call, seeing that it is Hawthorne Day, will be down to Hawthorne Terrace and Abercorn Road and maybe down around the Great Northern Railway, which of course today is CIE, Coral Unford Heardon where Casey worked for nine or ten years.
2: If there are Southside Dubliners who regard Parnell Square as the northern limit of civilization, there must be many Northsiders even for whom the East Wall area is a land equally unknown and forbidding. It is in fact almost an island, and if one remembers that the North Strand was once what the name implies and takes into account the enclosing effect of the Royal Canal, the railway lines and embankments, the solid mass of Connolly Station and sidings in Amiens Street and the docks and warehouses of the North Wall, one can understand why it is and always has been in in its relatively short history a distinct geographical unit and a rare and independent city community. In 1889, Mrs Susan Casey brought her family from the Dorset Street area to 25 Hawthorne Terrace, East Wall. The house was somewhat similar to the one they had in Inish Fallon Parade. Cheaper in upkeep, but with a small garden front and rear, and a room upstairs to which there was access by stairs in the hall. It's still a well-kept, comfortable house, as it must have been in 1895 when Isabella Beaver was born there to Bella Beaver and her ex-soldier husband, Nicholas, who was then living with the Casey's and working as a porter with the Great Northern Railway. Bella was Sean O'Casey's sister, Isabella therefore his niece. I lived with him. Slept with him. Oh,
5: that doesn't mean anything, I was only a kid. And uh, I watched my grandmother for him, you see. I stayed in the house and watched Granny to be with her when he'd go out in the evening. And then when I went to walk, a brother of mine, Sean Beaver, took over. I was born in where he lived, in Hartland Terrace. See, Mammy and Granny lived together in the house in Hartland Terrace. And I was born in twenty-five on Terrace, and Uncle Jack was only, well, he was his young boy. You see, we always called him Uncle Jack, because some the people used to call him always Sean. So we always called him Uncle Jack. I did anyway.
4: What did his mother call him? Johnny. What was Sean like in those early days?
5: Well, he was a young man. I remember him as a, when he grew to be a young man, and he'd be very quiet in the house. He was good-looking, only for his eyes was a bit tender, like, you know. But he was you'd never hear him in the house, only when he'd be shaving or washing himself, and then he'd be singing Irish songs all the time.
4: Uh, had Sean a nice voice, a nice singing
5: lovely, voice. A lovely voice when he was young. He loved our Ireland dearly, I,
7: <clears throat> and perished in our cause. In fact, he gave his health, his life his all. And why not raise a monument in memory of our hero? <clears throat> a tribute of respect that would be small. Though enemies may frown on our king without a crown, <clears throat> he done his duty to old loyal and well. <clears throat> All the oh, leaders dead, his memory lives instead. The late
0: lamented
7: Charles
0: Stuart Parnell. Oh, Casey so must have had uh, a very really sad childhood. Uh, he had the eye trouble when he was very young, but then, like, he must have been always told that he was the third Johnny, that the, the two Johnnies before him died. And then, of course, he wrote the story of when the mother was gone with the second child that had got the fever and when she was trying to get to the hospital in the taxi didn't she run into Parnell's parade going to the Rotunda to speak for Home Rule and couldn't get there and the child died in in her arms in the hospital no one attending the child and like that must have been like well to hell with Parnell and his bloody parade and the Home Rule and, and all that sort of thing and then uh, coming into Dublin on the tram from the Liberties and he caught up them with the vice-regal ball in Dublin Castle and the Fenian tram man and the mother telling him he mustn't listen to Fenians and he must always say, God save the king quietly to himself.
5: Well, I remember that when he was in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, Uncle Jack, you know he was in that. I heard me telling him one night that he sold his freedom and he said he didn't. He seen Mick was a soldier, and of course Uncle Jack was
4: a Sinn How did uh, your Uncle Mick get on with his mother?
5: Well, I liked her
4: very well. The only thing was,
5: that when he come home on leave, she'd always have to get money and give it to him going back. He never had the penny. And she didn't like that, you know, because it was torment. her. But I favoured it was Tom. Sean, Casey has it in one of his books. Right. And I always knew she thought much of him because she used to always say he's a lovely man. Tom. Tom.
4: What did uh, okay, Sean's mother think of him?
5: Of Tom? Uh, no,
4: of Sean himself. What did oh, your granny Oh, she used granny? to say,
5: she, granny used to say he'd be Prime Minister someday. Or he'd be something great. She always left that out for him. That he would really be something great someday.
0: The father then was a, a queer sort of man. Actually, we passed possibly the shop where he went for the uh, the Cavendish plug and the father didn't want to send him because he was a stupid thick of a boy and, of course, he couldn't go to school because his eyesight was bad. And if he didn't go to school, he'd grow up to be a dunce. He wouldn't be able to read or write. And the doctor saying, well, it's better to be a dunce and not be able to read and write. That to be a bloody blind man walking around the streets
8: of Dublin. Well, he went to St Mary's School. I don't. Is it a Mary Street or Dominic Street? Dominic Street, I think. Dominic Street, I think it's in. He went, and his own sister was the teacher in it.
4: She it was, was Isabella, Isabella. Beaver. Bella.
8: That was my mother-in-law. She was the school teacher in Mary's, in St Mary's School. And then when they moved down here into, but they moved then into and Parade. I don't know what school he went to then. But when he came down here, I believe he went for a while to St Barnabas' school, and then he became the superintendent of the Sunday school over in St Barnabas. He did
2: were there many Protestants living in this area at that period? Yes, there was an
8: awful lot of Protestants living round this new area all round the church road and down your Wapping Street and everywhere. There was times now on a Sunday morning when you go to St Barnabas' Church, which is gone now, but you wouldn't get a seat in it.
2: The strong Protestant settlement around East Wall was due mainly to the proximity of the terminus of the Great Northern Railway and the GNR's preference for employees of the right persuasion, often from the right part of the country too. But John O'Casey's Protestantism had the additional element of a Catholic grandfather from Limerick and a father who worked as a clerk for the proselytising Society for Church Missions. In Townsend Street. He mentions his father's regiment of theological controversial books, Fox's Book of Martyrs, full of fire and blood and brimstone and the like, but of superism there's no hint.
4: I would say that Sean romanticised his father, as um, writers tend to do when the father dies when they were young. Uh, I suppose that, that, that there would be a practical explanation for this, because the widow. No matter how critical she might be of the husband when she's alive, the Irish widow tends to canonise the deceased. So that little Sean, the orphan, would have been reared by a mother who always spoke with veneration of the father and who would recall only the nice things about the father. This is not to say now that uh, I believe that there are good grounds for for maintaining that the father was a, a cur or a blackguard. He seems to have been uh, a very decent man and one likes the the factual statements that are made about him, that he was a a man of principle and uh, a man of kindness who believed in in, uh, doing his best for his family. And then there were all those books uh, and in A Man of His Station a book collection and a literary chat with the son, with a little son or daughter. That seems to me to be a very good sign. But at the same time, a little uh, romanticisation of the father. That I suspect.
0: Uh, The great play about Sean O'Casey, whether he was rich or whether he was poor, or whether he lived in a slum tenement or whether he lived in a mansion. But I would say that Casey wasn't all that well off. Uh, I'd say he found it hard going times enough. I'd say he was poor enough parts of Dublin he lived in, Hawthorne Terrace, nice little respectable locality, uh, nice respectable people, closely knit people, a a community in itself where uh, everyone knows everybody else and bid each other the time of day, but all hard working class people, uh, people who probably couldn't afford going away on a holiday or couldn't afford any sort of a... Uh, fancy clothes, just ordinary plain meals, and that a day.
5: Well, I wouldn't say they were before. They weren't, you know, the so here. Some people trying to build and think they never had anything. I wouldn't really. They had a nice home, a good home, and he always had three meals a day and clothes on him. They hadn't any money in the bank of that. You see, the way it was, when Grandad died, his money was nearly all gone. He was so long sick. And when he died, Tom and Michael joined the army. And only left it was Isaac walking. Well, then they had to take a smaller house. They sold that big house in Dorset Street, which they owned. And they sold that. They sold the library belonging to my granddad. My mother kept a few of the books. And they sold the piano. A lot of things like that to Terrace. There has been a lot of doubt
7: about his early childhood that he wasn't reared in poverty, and it's only recently this has come to light. But uh, certainly I do think in his latter years that he did experience poverty. Uh, certainly his, his, his he, he appears to have such an intimate knowledge of everything of tenement life. I, I can never see any other dramatist writing again about tenement life because O'Casey uh, has covered everything. And the amazing thing uh, about his plays, *Juno and the Peacock and *The Plough and the Stars*, as much as we may dislike it, they're true. They're true, and everything that he wrote in it was true.
4: I think the 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 biggest burden or affliction that the O'Caseys, the Cases as they were then, had to bear was that they had started married life at a higher level than they ended up. So that, as each year went by, they were that little bit poorer, that little bit more miserable, and then on account of that, th- their father's illness uh, arising from the accident falling off a ladder, I think, that uh, each year brought a little less hope. And, as you know, you can always bear your burdens if there is some little light at the end of the tunnel. But when the, the little bit of light is growing less and less and less, then really things are tough, and you feel them as such.
8: Well, my father was born and reared in Monkstown, he was, and his father was a doctor, Dr. McEntee. But he went to, uh, he was educated in King's Hospital, isn't that the hospital? school? And then he went from there to Trinity College, he went to. And then he left that and he went to, he got married and he went to work Then he became a contractor, a joiner and had a contractor business. They lived around the number three Irvine Terrace. And then when I got married, I came to live in this house here, 49 years living here now on 13 Church Street, I am. My husband was Sean O'Casey's nephew. He was... He was a son of Sean O'Casey's sister, Isabella Casey, he was. And there's another uh, daughter of hers, uh, granddaughter of hers living over on St Mary's Road, Carmel Cullen is her name.
2: But and this is really the O'Casey
8: area. Yes, this is really the O'Casey a- area. He, was, uh, he lived up on Abercorn Road, on 18 Abercorn Road he lived. He never lived in this house? No. But he, he only would used visit used to come you. visiting it, yes. He used to come and visit its house.
2: I think he mentions in some of the books he used to come on a Sunday, did he?
8: Yes, he did. He came on a Sunday. And then he used to go to Hothorn Terrace on a Sunday to visit his brother Tom as
2: well. Tom had finished his time with the colours and had come home on the reserve to a job as a goods porter with the Meadowland Railway at the North Wall. So, to be near where he worked, the Cassidys folded up their tent and rented two rooms in a four-room cottage near the north wall. O'Casey's descriptions in the so-called autobiographies of the houses in which he lived and the people who lived with him were a mixture of fact and fancy. The relatives and neighbours, depending on how they were depicted, were either irritated or amused. Mrs Beaver and her husband, O'Casey's nephew, didn't take them too seriously.
5: He had a good laugh at them.
8: At the at the ridiculousness of them. To him they were ridiculous because he knew to the differ. That what had some of the things he said in them wasn't right. Well, he spoke about the poverty and the family and that.
4: And about his own mother being evicted from our from our home. I don't think that Sean uh, depended very much upon the topography of Dublin. Okay, if he were to come back now, he'd no more recognise Dublin than you or I will if we were to come back in 40 years. But he didn't depend upon this house or that house or this street or that street, but upon a certain kind of human being. And the dear knows that that kind of human being seems to have survived wonderfully in Dublin. When my husband's mother
8: died, which was Sean O'Casey's sister, Isabella, Uh, Sean O'Casey took my husband to him. he did, and he lived with him for a number of years. Until he left Ireland, he lived with him. That was
2: 1926, was it?
8: Yes. My husband lived with him until then, he did. Well, you see, when he left Abercorn Road, he went to live in uh, the North Circular Road, and then my husband still visited him on the North Circular Road. And then when he went to England, They were always in close contact with one another by letter-writing. And then every time he came over to Ireland, he always rung my husband up to, like, meet him, to go to meet him and that. He didn't come back very often, of course. Well, he was back a lot of times, that a lot of people didn't know of. But I did, yes. Mm. I knew he was back, because my husband used to go to meet him. He would. The north side, from the Five Lambs up,
0: had always great uh, association with the Gaelic Revival and literature. Uh, You must remember Willie Rooney uh, lived in Leinster Street there at the North Strand. And Willie Rooney, uh, as Brian O'Higgins said, was the man who blazed the trail to 1916. And he started all the Gaelic Revival and the Irish lectures and the historical lectures and the culture and the folklore and the music all in the Taylors Hall in the early 1900s before Sinn Féin or anything like that was heard of. So that would all be associated with the north side of the east wall Five Lamps area of Dublin.
2: And it was also the Tom Clark area? It was of
0: course. Tom Clark had a shop in Amiens Street as well as having a shop in Parnell Street and uh, Tom's shop was just beyond the Five Lamps there at the corner. In fact the shop is still there today. I think it's a Londrette or something now. But uh, yes, Tom was there. And then, of course, you had Sean McDermott, uh, who was the manager of the Irish Freedom, who lived in the Summerhill area. And uh, there, there seemed to be a fair blossom around there. And, of course, then Parnell Square was the Gaelic League.
2: But as the Gaelic League and Tom Clark influenced Sean O'Casey, they were hardly of any great concern to the other occupants of 18 Abercorn Road 70 years ago. Mrs Frances Cunningham for example now 90 years of age and still living there
9: Well this is uh, the house where Sean Casey lived upstairs on the flat and his mother and his brother Michael and his mother died here and uh, Michael was working in the post office He was the breadwinner because Sean wasn't able to walk. He had very sore eyes. uh, But he used to do a lot of writing, you know. So uh, he stayed at home anyway to mind the mother because she was very feeble. But uh, she died here anyway while I was here. And uh, then I left and went to a house round the back there. And uh, it was attached to a cattle stable, you know. We had to to give up the house and uh, go back, uh, come back here to Mrs. Canals' room. She owned the whole house that time. At least she owned this flat, these two flat, these two rooms. And she lived here, and I lived in the front. I had only one child at that time. Mm. And the cases were upstairs? And the cases were upstairs. What sort of people were they? Well, they were very nice people, very, very quiet. You'd never hear a word out of them. The mother was a lady. She really was. She was a little lady. When I came back here, I had to uh, break up my home, of course, and I, Sean Casey stored my furniture upstairs in that room for a shilling a week.
2: Sean's brother Michael wasn't a congenial man to live with, never had been, and but for the foolish, peace-loving anxiety of his mother, Sean would have come into violent collision with him long ago. His glittering gait had always been the door of a public house, and drunkenness was to him an inward sign of outward majesty and strength. O'Casey's view of Michael was not shared by all his relatives, and certainly not by their niece, Mrs Isabella Morphy, with whom Michael lived for twelve years at Ellenfield Road.
5: One of the best men you ever could speak to, to. A well-educated man. He drank, which we all have a fault there, have we? I haven't, anyway, but that's no fault, sure it's not. Not unless you go out and out. But he drank, but he'd a heart of gold. His brother Tom drank worse. His brother Tom drank terrible and poor Mick got the, the name. He was a terrible drunkard and that is not Mick off. <coughs> he used to annoy Uncle Jack because of the bottle of stout. He'd follow Jack round the room and he'd say, that'll do you good, get that into you. Now Jack hated, hated drink. And that's the kind of man he was. He'd love you to take everything, you know. I believe they had a row, and that's why Uncle Jack left. I never knew that, and I lived in Mrs.
10: Beaver's house at the time. And I never knew he had a row, and he never told me. I never saw Mick drunk in my life. And I knew him since I was a kiddie. I never saw him really drunk. I've seen men drunk, but I've never seen Uncle Mick drunk.
4: Did he talk about Sean?
10: He did. The big fella he called him. I used to say... Oh, he's getting in a queer bit of money. He's making a queer bit. I wish he'd send me a few quid. And when he'd send him the pound, he'd say, More per to you, Jack. Send me another next time.
4: Do you think that he disliked uh, his brother?
10: No. He used to say he always got a bit of fun out of him. Fun out of the tricks he'd play on him. For example? Well, he used to tell us. I don't know whether it was true or not. No. But he used to tell us he burst the bagpipes on him once. He used to march around the table, I believe, playing the bagpipes. And it got on Mick's nerves this night. He must have had a few jars on him. And he got a hold of the bagpipes when Sean wasn't looking and put a nail in the bag. Well, this is what Mick told us. I don't know how true it is. And uh, when Sean went next to the bagpipes, he was blown and blown and he couldn't get a note. He was red in the face. He didn't know what happened. and Mick was sitting laughing behind his back.
4: Uh, Sean rather tactfully uh, doesn't... Um... Uh, say a great deal about Mick certainly not in the way that the relations uh, built up Mick Uh, again if I recall correctly they said um, some of the nieces and nephews that Mick was a nicer person than Sean a more human person less remote and of course much funnier in his um, storytelling and again that if Mick had taken the trouble to Uh, write a play, Uh, Juno and and the Shadow (laughs) would would have been in the Hayter Place.
2: Obviously a lot of the relations didn't get on very well with Sean.
4: No, I I think that they resented, as relations tend to do, that one of themselves, who they knew as, pardon the expression, a snotty little orphan in the the days of yore with no seat in his pants, that he should now be a a world figure, his picture in the paper. I think that uh, people of a certain kind tend to exaggerate the importance that it gives a man to have his picture in the paper, or some poor old reporter mentioning him in a gossip column.
9: Him yeah, and then went, uh, was living upstairs, and Michael of course couldn't go to work, he couldn't get out, and Sean used to do a lot, as I said, he'd done a lot of writing. And there was some other man used to come into him here at night, and I they were making the, they were doing a play. Now I'm not sure which which play it was. It was either the play of the stars or the uh, another one that he was doing. But they kept walking up and down past the window, and that the garage wasn't there that time. There was an open field with the railway. Carriages running up and down, you see, and they were full of soldiers uh coming from France and going to France and um they see seeing the shadow of course up and walking up and down and up and down, and they wondered what was wrong, so they come over to the door and they asked and uh, Mrs. Canna said uh, that's uh, only uh, the man upstairs he's writing the play and he's dictating it to somebody and he said well tell him to see to stop walking up and down because if not he said he'd be shot <laughs> because the soldiers won't understand what's going on but uh, he, he just kept on walking up and down and the next thing was there was a shot through the window and uh He had to give us up after that. But he went on with us writing anyway.
2: Sean was leaving forever the room where his mother had lived so long and in which she had, at last, died. He had thought that her death would work a change in Michael. Saw a bit of it. So Sean got an old sack, filled it with as many of his books as it would hold and set out on his first trip to fresh woods and pastures new, carrying his knowledge with him. That trip brought him to 35 Mountjoy Square to the flat of his Irish-speaking friend Michal O'Mwailon Athorin afterwards a Labour member of Dublin Corporation. John McCann, Abbey Theatre dramatist and a former Lord Mayor of Dublin knew O'Mwailon well as McMullen. Just five days before his unexpected death on the 23rd of February he told us what he had heard of the encounter of Sean and Mihal at number 35. He was staying there
11: with the swept in a basement room. And uh, there was a knock at the door this day, and he opened it, and it was O'Casey with a a sailor's bag on his shoulder. uh, Mick Mullen said to him, "Uh, what have you in the bag? Books, said O'Casey. You can't eat books, says Mullen. You're telling me, says oh, Casey. I, I had a cup of tea and a half a slice of bread since yesterday. What am I better? said Mick Mullen. I don't need milk without any bread, you know. Can I come in for a while? I said Casey. And Mick Mullen said, Certainly. and his son told me afterwards that his father said I didn't think he, he was going to stay three months when he said, Can I come in for a while? And he was of opinion that, that was in their house in that that Casey wrote The Shadow of a Gunman.
2: Both O'Moyline and his room figure in the gunman. O'Moyline is the cowardly but literary peddler Seamus Shields. Well Casey was not always concerned about his friend's sensibilities, when dramatic effect could be achieved. A few years later, he was to leave Dublin forever. But like Joyce, he made the exile easy by taking Dublin with him, or by having it sent after him. People like Seamus Scully kept him in touch, particularly with the north side Dublin of which he was, and is, so much a part.
7: I was over in Devon on holidays in 1949, and I was stopping in Torquay. And uh, I just remember that Sean O'Casey was living in Tottenham, which wasn't very far away. And as I was born and reared in Moor Street, I felt I had a little bit in common with him as the guards, well, in the slum life area of Dublin. So anyway, I rang him up, I was a little bit afraid ringing him. So he said anyway he'd be delighted to see me, so I'd have a chat about old Dublin. And uh, when I went to my I greeted him in Irish, and he replied to me in Irish. And uh, when I was able to tell him about Dublin, all about Moor Street, He told me about how himself and his mother, when he was a kid, used to do their shopping in Moor Street. And then he recalled how he got his first job in Hampton and Leedham's. Of course, that is mentioned already in his biography. Uh, It absolutely amazed me that he had kept so much in touch with Dublin and that he was able to recall people that he had uh, associates of his down in the East Wall, particularly the Spruill family, uh, one of the daughters who worked in the Abbey Theatre. Uh, I thought living in Devon that he would have been completely cut from Dublin, but no, he got numerous papers and then of course he had numerous correspondence, which uh, just very, very ordinary people in Dublin.
2: The outside car swung along down Dorset Street where Sean had first seen the people day, Past George's Church, down Cavendish Row. He lists them all, the landmarks and localities of Northside Dublin, until he gets to Westland Row Station, the last spot of Dublin that would feel his footfall. O oh God Almighty, he says, the life he was leaving now had almost all been spun from what he had felt, had seen, had touched in these few Dublin streets. Sweet Inish Fallon, fare thee well.